You're listening to Comedy Central. February 25th, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Our guest tonight is an amazing actor now making his directorial debut with The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Chiwetel Ejiofor is joining us, everybody. Amazing to have him on the show. Really great guy. Also on the show tonight, there's no happy ending for Robert Kraft or R. Kelly. A Democratic senator fights with kids, and Roy Wood Jr. sees the future of politics. So let's catch up on today's headlines. First of all, did you guys have a good weekend? Yeah. Oh. Well, I'm glad I asked. I had a fun weekend. I, uh... <laughs> I was pretty chilled out, you know, I hung out with some friends. I watched the Oscars from on stage at the Oscars! Yeah. Hashtag winning. Hashtag living my life. Hashtag I just want to thank my mom. <laughs> It was, yo, it was such an amazing night. It was my first time there. I couldn't believe it. Like, it's, everyone is a move. Like, it's just, it's, it's wild. Like, the whole, like, everyone, you just, ah, 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 And then you seem like an idiot, because the whole time you say, I love you, I love you, I love you. I, I love you all. I love you all. I would, like, as you, I was super starstruck. I, uh, literally, Helen Mirren punched me in the face. <laughs> Best night of my life. But for those of you who couldn't be at the show, there was still plenty to enjoy watching at home. Uh, I mean, of course, the big moment everyone is talking about was the super sexy duet between Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. It was super hot. Now, um, here at The Daily Show, we can't afford the rights to the song, so we can play the video for you, but we had to change uh, the music. But still, take a look. Oh, get a room, you two. <laughs> and then, of course, there was the big news of the night. Green Book, which won Best Picture. Yeah, it's been called the reverse driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> because the driver is white and the passenger is black, and also they drive in reverse the whole movie. <laughs> but I'm not gonna lie, for me, the night's big winner was Spike Lee. The most animated reaction of the night coming from veteran director Spike Lee, who won his first Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for his critically acclaimed film Black Klansmen. Lee taking a not-so-veiled shot at President Trump in his acceptance speech. The 2020 presidential election is around the corner. Make the moral choice between love versus hate. Let's do the right thing. President Trump just tweeted on the Oscars. Here's what he just said. Be nice if Spike Lee could read his notes, or better yet, not have to use notes at all when doing his racist hit on your president, who has done more for African Americans, criminal justice reform, lowest unemployment numbers in history, tax cuts, etc., than almost any other president. That's right. President Trump called Spike Lee racist. <laughs> I was like, black Klansmen, that's offensive, folks. Should have been called black, very fine people on both sides. <laughs> both sides. Also, Trump is the last person to tell anyone about their reading. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> Mr. United Space, that guy? <laughs> so, congratulations to almost all of the winners from last night. Let's move on to some international news. 
Vice President Mike Pence. He was in Colombia today, or as Donald Trump calls it, South Mexico. <laughs> and he was there to monitor the situation across the border in Venezuela, where things are getting more tense than Mike Pence's own eyebrows when he tries to look tough. The crisis in Venezuela reaching new heights over the weekend as President Nicolas Maduro closed the border with Colombia and Brazil in an effort to block humanitarian aid from the U.S. from getting into the country. Vice President Pence arrived in Colombia today to meet with Venezuela's opposition leader, Juan Guaido. Our efforts to date will not only continue, they will be increased. Despite Maduro's brutality, we will press on. Okay, whose idea was it to send Mike Pence to solve the crisis in Venezuela. <laughs> like, is the plan just to bore Maduro out of power? Is that what it is? <laughs> but you're just gonna be like, okay, okay, enough about your mother, I'll leave already. <laughs> also, I think it's a little risky to send Mike Pence to South America. What if he accidentally eats spicy food? Like, <laughs> I mean, this is Mike Pence. If he has too much salt, he needs to goggle with, uh, like, holy water for an hour. <laughs> Also, by the way, I feel like Mike Pence goggles with his mouth closed because he doesn't want to seem gay. He's like... <laughs> and finally, some news from the world of politics. Senator Dianne Feinstein, at 85, the California Democrat is the oldest person now serving in the U.S. Senate. But she's not too old to mix it up with some much younger opponents. Lawmakers are no strangers to heated debate. But California Senator Dianne Feinstein is raising eyebrows after getting into it with a group of children over climate change. We are trying to ask you to vote yes on the Green New Deal. Okay, I'll tell you what. We have our own Green New Deal. The government and is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all You know for the what's people. interesting about this group? Is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I was elected by almost a million vote plurality, and I know what I'm doing. You're supposed to listen to us. That's your job. How old are you? How old I'm are 16. You I well, can't you didn't vote. vote for me. Well, she, well, you know better than I do. So I think one day you should run for the Senate. Great. And then you do it your way. Well, maybe you should run for the Senate. How are you the most childish person in a debate with actual children? <laughs> I'm surprised, like, Feinstein didn't just copy everything they said. I'm 16. I'm 16. <laughs> Stop copying me. Climate change is a problem. Climate change is a problem. Senator Feinstein, what are, what are you doing? Don't lecture the children. Just lie to them. Doesn't she know how easy it is to lie to children? She should have just been like, you want the Green New Deal? Okay, well, I'll talk to Santa about it. <laughs> now get the f out of here. I don't negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> All right, let's move on to today's top story. If you are a sexual predator, first of all, please stop watching my show. <laughs> and secondly, this past weekend was not a good time for you because it felt like the entire country turned into an episode of To Catch a Predator. <laughs> Starting with an arrest that was about as surprising as Shallow winning Best Song at the Oscars. Singer R. Kelly waking up in police custody this morning. He's now charged with 10 counts of sex abuse involving three minors. Kelly spent the weekend in jail, unable to post his $100,000 bond. If convicted, Kelly could face 70 years in prison. 
It's the freaking weekend. Maybe I'm about to spend 70 years in prison? Oh, 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 oh. 70 years in prison, though. That's a long time. And you know what that means? Get ready for a lot more chapters of Trapped in the Closet. Yeah. Because that's all he's gonna have time for. It'll be like, man, I can't believe I complained about being trapped in the closet. It was so spacious and I could come out at any time. But that's right. After years and years of alleged sex crimes, R. Kelly may finally be facing justice. And it almost feels strange that they got him after all these years, you know? It's like if Wiley Coyote finally caught the Roadrunner, who is also a criminal, by the way. Yeah, that bird has been smuggling, smuggling drugs across the border for years, and Trump's border wall isn't gonna stop him either. Yeah, he'll just paint a wall, a hole in the wall, and just beep, beep right through it. That's what he does. He's not the good guy. And, like, by the way, I was genuinely shocked to find out that R. Kelly doesn't have $100,000 for bail. I was shocked by that detail. Like, how is that possible? You know, now I think of his music completely differently. I thought I Believe I Can Fly was a song about believing in yourself. Turns out this mother couldn't afford a plane ticket. <laughs> I believe I can fly. Well, according to your bank statement, no, you, you can take the bus, bitch. That's what you can do. That's, that's what you can do. So, it turns out he doesn't have money. He's been charged with 10 counts. So, R. Kelly's best bet right now is to pray. Although I, I don't know if God has time for his prayers because he's got his hands full right now. Pope Francis today ended a landmark summit on the Roman Catholic Church's sex abuse scandal by calling abusive clergy tools of Satan. Pope Francis delivered strong condemnation of wrongful clerics yesterday, the pontiff promising to bring the wrath of God upon priests who are sexually abusive. Oh, that's right. The Pope has threatened abusive priests with the wrath of God. That is the ultimate just wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> when he comes back to work, you are in so much trouble. <laughs> yeah, so if I was one of those priests, I'd be pretty worried about facing God's will. I mean, look at what happened to Jesus, and God wasn't even mad at him, hmm? <laughs> And if you're super religious, the wrath of God raining down on abusive priests is the worst possible punishment. On the other hand, many people are pointing out that the wrath of God isn't a thing. <laughs> yeah, I bet R. Kelly heard this, and he was like, uh, can I also take the wrath of God <laughs> as my punishment? <laughs> no, I'm saying instead of prison, uh... I'll take two. Give me double wrath of God and no prison, yeah? Can I do that? So it looks like the church isn't going to do enough to punish these sex criminals, which means we might need to get the government involved. The only problem is the government has also got its hands full right now. A federal judge in Florida said tonight that one of President Trump's cabinet members broke the law while serving as a prosecutor in the case of a Florida billionaire accused of sexual abuse of minors. When Alexander Acosta, who's now the labor secretary, was the U.S. attorney in Miami, he and his prosecutors broke the law while cutting an extremely generous deal with Jeffrey Epstein, the politically connected billionaire accused of sexually abusing more than 30 underage girls at his Palm Beach mansion. Are you concerned about the labor secretary's handling of the Jeffrey Epstein case? I really don't know too much about it. I know he's done a great job as labor secretary, and uh, that seems like a long time ago. Yes, you heard that right. 11 years ago, the man who is now Trump's labor secretary, basically let a billionaire off the hook for abusing underage girls. And President Trump's response is, that seems like a long time ago. Yeah. Look, that thing, 
was 11 years ago, folks. By now, all those underage girls are overage. Problem solved. <laughs> I also like how the president's like, oh, I, I haven't been following the story. I was too busy watching Spike Lee at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Think about how crazy this is. There's a member of Trump's cabinet who helped a billionaire sex offender sweep a scandal under the rug, and the story is flying almost completely under the radar because there's another billionaire having a different sex scandal at the same time also in Florida. Yeah, I'm talking about New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. He's famous for leading the Pats to six Super Bowl rings, but it turns out there's another kind of ring he may have been involved in. New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft has been officially charged with first-degree solicitation of a prostitute in Florida. The charges come as part of a much larger crackdown on illegal sex trafficking. On two occasions, Kraft solicited a prostitute at this shopping center massage parlor, about 20 miles from his West Palm Beach home. Okay, I'm sorry, this story is so insane. What are you doing paying for sex in a strip mall in Florida? <laughs> you own the Patriots! You could walk into any strip mall in Boston and get a hand job for free. <laughs> you wouldn't even have to ask. They'd just be like, oh my God, Robert Kraft, what an honor to yank your crank. <laughs> hey, Sully, get over here and help with the balls. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, you're a billionaire and you might go to jail for a happy ending, <laughs> which by the way, I've never really understood the term happy ending. Like all massages have a happy ending. Like, because I leave relaxed and smelling of lavender. I don't understand. <laughs> when people are like, did you get a happy ending? I'm like, there's always a happy They make it sound like the alternative is a sad ending, you know? <laughs> like, they ask, do you want a happy ending? And if you say no, the masseuse is like, okay, massage is over, and your dog is dead. <laughs> no! I should have got the happy one! <laughs> but it's important to remember that this, this isn't just a case of a rich man paying for sex, right? Because investigators say that these women weren't willing sex workers. They were women who were from China, who were forced into sex slavery, held against their will, and made to serve over a thousand clients a year. Yeah, so this wasn't pretty woman. It's more like pretty horrific, which is why these are very serious charges, unless you're a Patriots fan. What you won't find among many Patriots fans are a lot of critics of Kraft. He's single, right? It's not like he's married. He's my boy, I stand by him the whole way. He's the goat. Somebody's just trying to come down on him because everybody hates to, uh... See the Patriots win. If he wants to go have a little fun with the hookers, that's his business. I don't want to think any of this happened. Go Pats, go Rob Kraft all the way. They might drag his name through the mud a little bit, but I think, I think in the end, it, everything's going to be fine. And I think it'll fuel them for seven. You know, this is what's incredible about sports in America. <laughs> if you're winning, there's no limit to what your fans will let you get away with. Robert Kraft could nuke Boston. And you still have Patriot fans staggering out of the blast zone. They'd be like, this is just fuel for ring number seven, baby! <laughs> like, that's how crazy loyal sports fans are. And look, you can call it repulsive, you can call it insensitive for these people to just brush aside serious sex crimes like this, but you could also call it presidential. We'll be right back. My guest tonight is an Academy Award and Golden Globe-nominated actor who makes his feature directorial debut in the new Netflix film, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Please welcome Chiwetel Ejiofor. 
Uh, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. I'm such a big fan of your work. Uh, I mean, you, you've had 20 years of acting on stage and on film. I've loved everything you've done, and this is a new chapter in your life. This is your debut in directing. Yeah. Congratulations. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let, me, let me ask you, this. is it difficult to direct a film that you are also acting in? It is a little complicated. Yes, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Cut me. Let me try that again. <laughs> I was great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How was that for you? That was pretty good. How was it for you? Not bad. Okay. Let's... Yeah, um, you know, I was always worried about that. That right. was the one thing that I was really kind of stuck on as I was going through the process and just to see how I would respond, you know, on the floor. You know, and the, I think the main thing is, is just preparation. Right. You know, it's just preparing. I had a great team of, uh, you know, heads of department working with me, Dick Pope, an amazing cinematographer, Valerio Bonelli, an editor, and uh, who's terrific, Tule Peak production designer. So just working with that kind of caliber of person, you know, you feel that you have the space to kind of give it a go. You and you, you definitely did give it a go. I mean, it's a beautiful film that is based on a true story. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing film. It's set in Malawi, and um, you actually bought the film rights to this book after, uh, after you, 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 you read the book. Yeah. You read the book and you were like, I need to make this into a film. What did you love about the story? I loved, the first thing that I loved was its optimism. You know, it's hopefulness. There's, you know, the story centers on William Kamkwamba. Yes. 13 years old in Malawi. And, um, you know, the, his, his community is going through a famine, essentially, that's brought on by uh, intense flooding and then a drought. So they, and the government has turned their back on them, price of grains through the roof, and, um, you know, and they're in a massive short, shortfall for, yes. their, for their grain harvest. So uh, he's taken out of school. Secondary school isn't, isn't free in Malawi. He uh, starts sneaking back into the school. He ends up sneaking into the, into the library and he finds a book called Using Energy, an American textbook. And on the front of it is a windmill, picture of a windmill. Right. And so he starts using anything he can find, just any of the, just scrap metal, anything he can club together and the book, you know, for the, for the science and technology part of it to try and build a wind turbine that will, you know, um, irrigate the land, that will, you know, generate electricity. Right. Irrigate the land. And, and I was... I mean, what, what's powerful about this is, on its own, that seems like an amazing story. And then you find out this happened in real life. You find out that William was a real boy. You find out that William genuinely snuck into school, which is mind-blowing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> snuck into school to learn. I mean, I can't imagine myself, like, sneaking in to, like, double English or math or anything. Yeah. But, but this, this, was, this was what inspired him. And then he goes on to save his village, you know, learning about sustainable ways to, 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 to get water for and his that people. was the moment that really changed everything for me in the book as well, is thinking of what my relationship to school was when I was 13. Right. You know, whether it was conceivable that I would be trying to, you know, sneak past teachers yeah. to get into the math class, you know, and just realizing, no, it's not conceivable. And that, the privilege of that, of my dynamic, you know, understanding the situation of this boy and thinking, that would be an amazing story to try and get out there, you know, what the circumstances and this kind of, you know, him living in the solution, basically, him trying to organize and find the solutions to the problems that he's facing and the challenges that he's facing in this really positive way. What I, what I really enjoyed about the film as well is that many people shoot films in, in areas that are different to where the story actually took place. It's oftentimes easier, but you chose to film in Malawi where the story takes place. Um, I think you found 
like the places where William actually grew up, you know, the, the, the school, the, the, the house where he lived, the, the, the same world that he was in. And what was honestly the most impressive, and we saw it a little bit in the film, is that you learned one of the Malawian languages, I think it's Chichewa. Yeah, yeah, Chichewa, yeah. You, you learned a new language for the film. Yeah. And you act in the language. Yeah. <laughs> was, I mean, this is, yeah. There's, there's authentic and then there's authentic. I mean, this, like, you really respected and wanted Malawi to be front and center in this. Why was that important for you? And what do you think it added to the film? Well, you know, first of all, I wanted the film to feel incredibly authentic, to feel like um, a sort of teleportation experience. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take the audience into this space, you know, Alice in Wonderland, down the rabbit hole, here we are in this hole. And I wanted to tell the film from the point of view of the people who experienced it. Right. You know? I really felt like, for, you know, we often see these films and we sort of step outside and we often film films like it, you know, they're telling the story of these hardships or struggles or, um, you know, these kind of difficulty and challenges and we're outside of that perspective. But what would it be like to take an audience inside that perspective? Yes. You know, to invite an audience into the private spaces of people and their lives when they're undergoing these kind of, these highly stressful, difficult situations, but finding a way, a way through. So. I felt like a way to do that was to just kind of embrace the authenticity, to go right into Malawi, to be in all of the actual locations, but also to learn to chewa, to, you know, to try and really encapsulate their experience and, and tell the story from, from their perspective. Uh, let me ask you this. You, 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 you're creating this film, you're telling the story, you have this community, you have this vision for what you're trying to achieve. There's something very specific that you did in the film, and that is you used sub subtitles throughout. You also have the people playing between languages. There are moments where people are speaking in English, and then they switch into Chichewa, and then they come back into English, which for anyone who speaks multiple languages is one of the most authentic ways to speak a language. That's not an easy thing to do, and I can imagine some people would doubt it and be like, hey, why don't they just all speak English like Somali pirate type vibes, mm. you know? <laughs> why are they switching? Because it's a lot easier to do, but, but you had to make that choice, why? For the, for the authenticity, right. really. For that sense of really being, being in and of that, of that place. And, and that was one of the things I loved. When you're, in, when you're in Malawi, that's what happens. You know, people speak English in certain circumstances. Yes, they yes. might speak English at school. They might speak English in uh, places of work or speaking to members of a different tribe, obviously, right, where right, the language right. isn't common. So that all happens. And then people at home, in their intimate communities, in their family dynamics, are speaking Chichewa. But sometimes, especially with younger people, that slips into a little bit of English yes, and then into Chichewa. Yes, yes. And I just wanted to capture a bit of that because that felt very authentic to me. It felt very real to me. I think it happens all over the world, by the way. Right, you know, right, People right. do that. And people in the UK, you know, if, they, if their families are from Europe somewhere, Italy, Spain, France, you know, people do that at home and then they speak in different languages. And so people really related to that sort of bilingual capacity to the film. And, um, you know, so it allowed me to introduce that kind of authentic element to the storytelling. You, you have an amazing story that you've told. Um, it's a fantastic debut. And I was really fascinated and, and pleasantly surprised to find out that William is still going. Oh, yeah. He's still in energy. He is now a grown man. I think he works between one of the Carolinas yeah, North and Carolina. North Carolina and still Malawi. Yeah. Has he seen the film? He has, yeah. I mean, you know, he's seen it a couple of times now, and he's really excited by it. I mean, he has a kind of, you know, it does take him back into a, into a you know, traumatic time right, of, his, right, right. of his young life. And even though it has all this energy and hopefulness and positivity, and he himself has all of those things, you know, it is that kind of a balance of right. remembering this very stressful, you know, difficult time. 
but um, but the resolution to that is is profound and and positive, you know. So um, you know, he's a wonderful guy. He has this. Uh, he's building an innovation center now in Lilongwe, the capital of yes. Malawi, and it's really about empowering young people to you know to identify the problems that they have in the in their communities and find ways of solving those problems right. themselves with the help of a wider community, you know, and that is very empowering, it's very strengthening, it's really what his legacy and his journey is and what he did in these extraordinary circumstances and, you know, like I say, it's about, it's about living in the solution. I think we all have a lot to learn from the William Kamkwambas of this world, definitely, you know, definitely. especially in the face of, you know, climate change, things like this is what put this community under so much stress in the first place, you know, so, um, you know, he's a wonderful man. It's a wonderful story that you've told. Uh, fantastic job acting in it, as always. And congratulations. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of you behind the camera, my friend. Thank, Thank you for being on the show. The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind premieres in select theaters and on Netflix March 1st. Chiwetel Ejiofor, for everybody. Thank you again. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.